Oh, hi. <clears throat> I'm sorry. I didn't see you. How are you? I'm fine, Katarina. How about you? I'm good, too. Thank good. you. Thank you. I have a little bit of a cold, but apparently it's not COVID. I tested negative. <laughs> oh, okay, good. <laughs> good, good. Um, yeah, thank you for coming. And um, you found, you know, you um, check. Like, there's not too much to know about the app. Um, there's a way of direct messaging. So okay. above the microphone, there's this paper airplane. Mm -hmm. I'll, yep. I'll write you a hey on there. So, yep. <laughs> and then there's a whole chat room, but you don't really have to take care of that. Um, I'll I'll check while you speak. Um, all the way on the left, there's like a speech bubble, and if you click on that, there's the room chat option. So if people have questions but don't, I make you be in a noisy place and so on, they will comment on that chat instead of coming he up here and talk so um yeah but whatever you prefer yeah it's it's up to you okay and uh we'll wait like five to six minutes if that's okay and to give people time to come um, sure. and then i'll introduce you and then we go from there thank you Catherine. Hi, how are you? Hi, everybody. Um, Dennis, meet um, Dr. Pascalis. So I want to make sure I say your name right. Um, Pascalis Gukupi Dennis? Correct, correct, absolutely correct. Uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. I, I know it's difficult, but I, you, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> I have been, so I, yeah. Um, so your name is Greek, right? So um, yeah, correct. correct. He wants to Greece, and it was very nice. <laughs> okay, good, good. So yeah, so I have this weird combination of letters at the beginning, which is not really necessary in English, but it's you know it's it's a translation from Greek. So uh, okay. So G only G is enough at the beginning. Oh, only G. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, thank yeah. you. <laughs> Does your name have a meaning? The, uh, if you go back in, in, in Slavic and in ancient Greek, it means a slow person, <laughs> literally. Well, you're definitely breaking the mold <laughs> on that. <laughs> My name means the sea in Turkish. Oh, OK, good. <laughs>
so we'll get started briefly. I'm gonna start pinging some people in and we'll have a we'll have a great Saturday together. So hello, uh, Doctor. Is it Gupta Dennis, or how do I say that? Correct, Gupta Dennis. Gupta Dennis. So I'm yep. very excited on the topic. It has it. It uh, projects well onto some very current interests. So I really look forward to talking about it. Thank you, Sharon. I also went to Greece once, and this was in the eighties. And um, I was I was going to go to Mykonos, but I got on the wrong boat and ended up in Paros. But I stayed there a week and had a great time. <laughs> no, I think Paros is even better. I mean, it's less crowded, so it's if you really want to enjoy a combination of of sea and people and nightlife, it's it's much better than Mykonos, I think. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a wonderful time. Yeah. Nice. I loved my, I take two trips to Greece and I love them both. The eggs that you can get there are just, it's no comparison to what you can get in the US. But well, it's was... the eggs? Yeah, the chicken eggs. Uh, I don't, re oh, really? I don't remember which island I was on. It was on the west side, but we mainland or, or an island. It was an island. Um, mm -hmm. It was one of the. There's limited amount of islands on the west side compared to <laughs> to south or or the east. But um, we stayed at a like a villa i guess you'd call it and yep. the people who were hosting us they had chickens on property and they would bring them to us every morning and the the color of the the yolk and just the flavor it was yeah and the food in greece is amazing yeah yeah this is this is one thing that i miss here in germany to be honest with you when was the last time you were back to Greece? I mean, it's easy from here. So last time was summer, last summer. What was your, almost what was your favorite uh, culinary experience? In Greece, you mean? Well, eh? when you last visited. Oh, to see my friends back, so I'm 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 from a small city uh, in the north, really in the north. So we, we are far away from the sea, so at least two or three hours drive. And uh, in the winter, it can be very cold. So it's snowing every day, every every winter. So it's it's not how you imagine it. Uh, but for me, you know, because of Corona time, I had a lot of time. I mean, to to see my friends back, and uh, you know, to sit together as we used to do, I mean, to sit together in a table and have, you know, really long chats and uh, drink together. So it was really nice for me. Yeah.
Were you all drinking ouzo, or is there something more uh, specific in your region? It's, so ouzo, it's 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 good. I mean, the the night that you drink it, but it's it's not really you know enjoyable the next morning. So, <laughs> because of the anise. Mostly. Well, I ha- yeah, I have a terrible ouzo story from Athens, but I won't well, get into that. <laughs> you see, you see. I, I prefer a spirit which is similar, but without anise, which is called chipuro. I mean, it's it's still, I don't know, 40, 45% alcohol or even more, I mean. But at least, uh, you know, the next morning you are fine. That's important, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's the same with port wine. Don't get drunk on port wine. My hometown is Porto, so don't... Yeah. It's so horrible. <laughs> correct, correct. <laughs> and you have a lot of people getting drunk, or it used to be. Now it's not totally for free because visiting the wine cellars was for free to drink two glasses. And you have a whole street full, like a whole um, part of the city. It's just wine cellar. So you can go from one to the next to the next. And then the wine cellar is cool. But then you get out. <laughs> so it's hot and, and you don't feel good. <laughs> I, I, I guess you, you have to know how to control it. Eh? You have to be experienced. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, after showing everyone that visits my hometown, <laughs> you, get, you get to the spirit. So um, I just. Okay. I think we can start. People will, will come in more. Uh, because it's uh, Saturday, it's but um, yeah, let, welcome everyone to Science Society. And today we have a really uh, wonderful guest speaker talking about his really interesting research. So thank you, um, Dr. Pascalis Gupidenis, uh, for coming and uh, for taking the time to talk with us today here. And let me give you a little bit of uh, some background information. And Dr. Boscali, um he earned his PhD in material science from NCSR Demokritos, Athens, Greece in 2014. And this PhD research focused on ionic transport mechanisms of organic electrolytes, physics of ionic based devices and of non-volatile memories. And after his PhD, he joined a group of George Maliaras um, at the Department of Bioelectronics, EMSE in France, as a postdoc researcher. And um, there he continued, um, or he focused on the design and development of organic neuromorphic devices based on electrochemical concepts. And in 2017, he joined the Max Planck Institute for Polymer Research, and he's currently the group leader at the Department of Molecular Electronics. Um, yeah, so thank you so much for coming. It's a great honor to have you here, and uh, the stage is yours. Thank you, Yep. Quickly before we do that, um, there's yep. a question we like to ask. What, um, if you're willing to indulge us? What was uh, what was the first experience that that made you know that you wanted to pursue science as a profession or 
Now, what was the path of your journey to your current point? The first clear experience. Eh? So to to be honest with you, I mean, in, in my bachelor's degree, I mean, I knew that I, I, I would like to do something with science, but I was not, you know, really convinced that uh, hardcore research would be something for me. And then if I remember correctly, it was uh, at some point during the end of my bachelor's degree where we had to, 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 to take um, a project. Um, and then basically this project was really important and uh, really pivotal for me because it was, I, was, I was really lucky to be involved in, in some microelectronic devices, which were state-of-the-art devices back then, industrial devices. And basically these devices were uh, memory devices from ST Microelectronics, if I remember correctly. So in in, in Europe is is a leading uh, um, technology uh, industry in industrial level, and basically these were the really uh, at the edge of of technology around uh, you know mid uh, two thousand or or something like this, and uh, I really understood the importance of of you know having really good devices and uh, microelectronic devices, I mean. And then I understood what memory is in devices. And then at some point I started to understand that microelectronics means, uh, you know, electronics. So we have electronic uh, carriers of information. And then I understood that, uh, you know, biology, communication in biology happens in with different uh, uh, ways with different means or different carriers, for example, not uh, electrons and ions. And then, then I started, you know, reading about neuroscience, biology, and then I went to another field, uh, which which is called uh, of material science, which is called more or less um, ionic electronic mixed conductors, which means that these are materials which conduct not only electrons but ions. And then I started, you know, going step by step to 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 materials and devices, which, as I will explain later on, which resemble more biological processes. And, and then I, I deviated a lot from, from, you know, classic electronics. And now I'm in a field of, of uh, you know, doing uh, frontier research in, uh, in devices which resemble more, uh, you know, biological processes. Uh, and we are much closer now in neuroscience. Uh, and more or less that, that is a story. Fascinating. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. And with that, um, we're ready for your presentation. Yeah. So let me start. Let's say more or less with 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 some background information. So I will not. Uh, first of all, I mean you can stop me whatever you want. So I want to to, to have a casual, not not a simple conversation with you. So you can stop me whatever you want. And. So as you all know, a popular approach, uh, let's say, in, in artificial intelligence is the, uh, let's say, representation of information processing uh, aspects that are found in, in, in biological systems with artificial neural networks, the software neural networks uh, that you all know that many of us uh, we use. So this, is, this approach is based on executing algorithms on traditional computer architectures and traditional devices, microelectronic devices, as I mentioned uh, before. And these, these now algorithms only loosely represent uh, what happens in, in, in nervous systems. So it's, it's only a loose representation of, of, of biological systems because, of course, they are running in, on software and traditional microelectronic architectures. 
And as you all know, over the last, I would say, 10 or 15 years, this field, uh, this field of uh, artificial intelligence has, uh, has been uh, developed really uh, you know, quickly. We have an enormous potential there. And, but however, there are uh, many concepts of, of artificial intelligence are mainly based now on digital operating uh, systems. So all these devices that we have in microelectronics, transistors, capacitors, capacitors no, but transistors, mostly operate as, as digital uh, devices. But on the other hand, we live in an analog world. And as you, as you know better than me, many of you are neuroscientists, real neuroscientists. Uh, in, in biology, all these biological building blocks like uh, neurons or synapses, uh, they, they deal with a great diversity of signals. So we don't have, uh, you know, only electrons, but we have also other carriers of information in, in biology. For instance, uh, ions, various ionic species, mostly alkaline species, neurotransmitters, biomolecules, and uh, all these kinds of things. Uh, so these are processes that you cannot directly emulate with, with uh, classic uh, electronics. And alternatively, now all these um, neural processing functions um, can be directly emulated with non-conventional technologies, microelectronic uh, technologies, and circuits and uh, architectures. By non-conventional, I mean any kind of technology that deviates from silicon uh, technology. And we have many uh, different, uh, let's say, technologies uh, there right now. Some of them are, are really fitted on, on, for, for specific applications, so for example, for data-intensive uh, uh, applications. And other approaches or other technologies and materials are mostly suited for, for interfacing with biological System. So this is an example. As, as an example, I can say surely that uh, organic devices uh, fall into this uh, this uh, category. So although you know this technology, this is uh, this approach of artificial intelligence as, as we know it with with software or machine learning uh, was really really uh, successful and is really really successful right now. There is uh, there is ample of evidence that we have also to find new ways to emulate biological processes with uh, you know with technologies uh, meaning devices, uh, microelectronic devices, circuits or, or architectures. And uh, for instance, you, you, you all know this, this example, this um, uh, really uh, you know, impactful example that we had a few years ago, this, this, uh, this supercomputer, uh, uh, which has been trained with uh, more or less with deep neural networks, this AlphaGo computer. Uh, from DeepMind. And this, this computer, as you know, won the world champion in this, in this game Go back in 2015, I remember correctly, 16. And, but if you see the metrics are, are quite different. Uh, so for instance, the supercomputer consists of, of, of a massive amount of, of, uh, of hardware parts. So for instance, hundreds and thousands of CPUs uh, and GPU boards. But on the other hand, the player only the only thing that he, he wants is, is is a plate of it's, it's a, he he needs a meal. It's so simple. And in terms of uh, of let's say numbers, uh, what we know from this supercomputer that was running in the in the background was that it consumes a power of of twenty kilowatts. So this is the number. And what we know roughly for for a for a brain for a human brain is that it consumes more or less twenty or even less watts of, of, of power. On one hand, we have a supercomputer, you know, that is trained only to execute specific computational tasks. So it was trained to only to play this game Go or other various games, one-to-one -one games in, in, in other um, 
versions of this AlphaGo computer. But on the other hand, a, a nervous system is a general purpose intelligence system. So I believe that it's not really fair to right now to, to benchmark or to compare biological intelligence with this kind of supercomputer. Uh, and this is obvious uh, why. So this is why we have to understand, uh, let's say, what, what are the, the basic or the most important computational primitives of, of biological systems. And we also have to understand how we can map those uh, uh, primitives in, in, in with materials, uh, microelectronic uh, devices, uh, circuits, or even uh, systems. And another really interesting uh, feature, at least as, at least for my research, is uh, what we know or the, the so-called uh, Moravec paradox. So Hans Moravec was and is, is a famous roboticist uh, from CMU from Carnegie Mellon, and what this paradox more or less says is that. Right now, you know, it's easy to make computers to, to perform a sort of adult, uh, let's say, like performance. So, for example, to, to execute computational, hardcore computational tasks, to, to, to calculate equations and so on. But it's extremely difficult to, to give those, the, the computer or a machine, the ability of a one-year-old to when it comes to perception, mobility, or, um, you know, the ability that we have to, to locomote in an open and unstructured environment. This is a, really a paradox. Uh, so, for example, what we know is that what the common belief, uh, let, let me put it in this way, is that what we believe is that whatever is hard for computers should also be hard for, for, for humans. Uh, I mean a task. But the reality is opposite uh, in, in many cases. So, for example, a computer can really handle, uh, you know, many digit calculations then can calculate many uh, really huge numbers for us is more or less difficult to do it but on the other hand as i mentioned before is extremely difficult for a machine to give these capabilities uh, to explore a really open and unstructured world such as what happens with with robotics for example this is really hard for a machine still uh, many of those applications that you see on youtube they are really pre, let's say, programmed, really, still now. And another aspect, which we go now a little bit more on my field, and it's, it's closely related to biology, bioelectronics and, and neuroscience, is that in order to have this, this seamless uh, communication between electronics and biology, we have to develop from start electronics, devices and circuits that share the common, let's say, computational primitives with biological systems. And why that? More or less, they have to speak the same language in order to have a, a really efficient communication between a technology and biology. And right now, what we have, roughly, with, uh, with what you, you, most of, of, of uh, biologists and neuroscientists you know, use in, in a lab, I mean, multi-electrode arrays and all these kinds of things, more or less, we have a capacitive communication between electronics and biology uh, but as you know as i mentioned also before we have a whole diversity of signals and signaling in biology so for example ions alkaline ions neurotransmitters and we have to find ways to develop materials and devices in order to take into account all these carriers of information and this is really important so we are talking now not about uh, artificial intelligence but hybrid intelligence with those kind of, of uh, systems. And now going 
back to my research. So my research is, is focused on, on a specific category of, of materials and devices. Uh, we are mostly using in our lab uh, uh, organic materials and devices. And the, um, the difference between, uh, let's say, those devices and the state of the art is that our devices are soft, materials are soft, they, um, they are polymers, basically. And if you have in mind what a polymer is, is, is like a soup of, is like pasta. It, uh, it's, uh, it, uh, it consists of long strings of, uh, um, uh, of macro, let's say, molecules, um, which are loosely packed between each other. And then uh, because of this reason, because of this softness, uh, these materials are, allow, let's say, more efficient communication between biology uh, and electronics when these materials are, are incorporated in, in a device. Uh, so, for instance, if you imagine uh, a classic material like silicon, uh, if, you, if you take a piece of silicon and you leave it in air, then it oxidizes. It means that it creates, you know, a really thin film uh, of, of silicon dioxide, of glass, basically, and this is an insulator. This means that if you immerse this, this, this material in, in, a, in a wet environment, in a wetware, this means that there will be an insulator between silicon and, and an electrolyte. But on the other hand, with, with soft matter, with soft materials, you have a direct communication between you know, ions, neurotransmitters, and, and the material that you, that you have. And these are called mixed conductors these materials, meaning that they, they don't have only the ability to, to conduct electrons, as, as you know in classic electronics, but they support also the transport of ions, neurotransmitters, uh, and all these kinds of things. Which means that right now we have the ability to have, a, and we have devices, artificial devices, uh, that can really, uh, let's say, emulate really, really uh, realistically what happens in biological systems. So for example, we have artificial synapses that are, are really sensitive to neurotransmitters, real neurotransmitters. And this is really hard to do it with, with classic technologies. We have neurons, artificial neurons, for example, which exhibit spiking dynamics and all these kinds of things. And uh, they, they are really sensitive to, to what happens in, in, in a biological environment, to ionic concentrations, uh, under physiological and pathological ranges. And um, right now, the, the key property right now is that so far we had artificial devices and neuromorphic computing devices, which were able to, uh, to perform only hardcore computing and basically to, to perform, uh, let's say, computation, neuromorphic computation in an accelerated time. But with those kind of, uh, you know, organic materials and devices, uh, we have slow and dummy devices in, in a way, but all the time scales, the characteristic time scales, uh, more or less the characteristic voltages, the carriers of information that are, are evolved there, are really close to what happens in biology. And this is really important if in the future we want to create a technology which will be really efficiently communicating with um, uh, with biology and this is really important especially for closed loop uh, you know communication between electronics and, and biology and for autonomous bioelectronic applications uh, at the end so this is more or less my my research uh, right now
Wow, thank you so much for sharing. Does uh, thank you, does anyone does anyone on stage have questions? Because I definitely have one question in mind at least. Super thanks. Because I was initially was going to say, okay, electronics solves all your life problems, but then I, I came in like twenty minutes later and it's still electronics. Like I'm like you. Like I have more than more than just electronics. I could I could make electronics work for me, you know, if I really try hard like you do. Yeah, but what what about the other things? Uh maybe we get more to the questions of the research first and then we can go to the more general uh questions like this. So um Thank you, uh, Pascalis, for sharing. And um, please, Dennis, Serena, Dr. Olu, go ahead with your questions, Dr. Shah. Okay, I'll go first. So, um, in the translation of the digital to the organic realm, so I'm thinking of when I took um, music composition and we were trying to translate musical notes to the digital platform and there was a phenomena called quantizing where basically the machine can't really and this might have changed this was some time ago the machine really couldn't accurately capture all the nuance of the organic expression so i wonder if this was has there been a change in that and if not how do you compensate for this translation um, differential? Of course, Yuki. I mean, it, th this is the obvious way to do it. I mean, as, as a first stage, you know, as the, as the, the, the basic communication, I mean, between an analog and a, and a digital world. So you, you acquire signals, of course, and you digitize them. And this is really effective. I mean, this is really efficient. But if you want to avoid this, um, in a way, this, uh, this, uh, um, conversion, then you have to perform as much as computation you can in the analog world. So if you want to avoid that. So for example, there are many applications that you want to, obviously, when you convert those kind of signals into the digital world, you need additional electronics. For many applications, so music was, you know, was one example. Uh, for music and for this all kind of things, probably you don't care about computational resources because you do everything in a computer and you read and you play everything, I mean, in a computer or in the best case, I mean, in, uh, I don't know, in, in a mobile phone or something like this. But there are many applications uh, which you, you, you don't even have these resources. So, for example, point-of-care diagnostics or uh, robotics, for example. So... Uh, if you want, uh, for instance, to, to distribute intelligence in, in, in robotics or in material, as we call it, so inside materials, then there is no space for this conversion. And, um, uh, of course, if you have a centralized, you know, unit to perform, uh, you know, this kind of conversion, it's easy. But if you want really to, to have many different cores around an intelligent agent or robotics or these kind of things, then you have to avoid these kind of things because they create a lot of delays. So there are specific regions 
and not for you know hardcore computing, but yeah, yeah, like for, for short AI, computing. AI, AI, Matt, please into don't the interrupt. Please don't interrupt the speaker when um, when he's speaking. Thank you. Sorry, go yeah. ahead. So, yeah, yeah. So of course this approach is and was really successful there, but especially in many applications of soft computing. It, it is beneficial to to perform local computation with by avoiding you know this this uh, conversion between the analog and the digital world. And when we are talking uh, not about electrical signals but all the other kind of signals, obviously you want to perform everything there locally. When I'm talking about you know chemical signals and chemical signaling or ionic signaling. Uh, there are ways to perform computation not with electrons but with all the, the other carriers of information locally. So the problem with with this conversion is that it you you lose many a lot of information uh, because everything becomes electrical after that. This is what I mean. I understand. Thank you for your <clears throat> thank you for your answer. Thank you, thank you, Denise. Yeah. Serena. Uh, Serena, go ahead. So, yeah, I, I'm going to have a lot of questions as, as we get into uh, the material, but you did briefly mention you had an artificial neuron. I'm curious uh, if you could say a few more words about that. I mean, there there, there are a few a few people that are working on, on the field. It's not, I, I don't, I don't want to, you know, to, to take the, the lead on that. Uh, but there are right now small-scale circuits, which are, you know, neurons that they are, um, uh, they work with these principles that I, I've talked about right now. And one, uh, you know, obvious example and obvious advantage of, again, in soft uh, computing aspect is that all these things can be really implemented into flexible or stretchable substrates. Uh, with organic electronics, there is a long history. For example, in, in terms of, you know, uh, uh, industry, I mean, with OLEDs, organic LEDs. So you can really implement all these things uh, in, in a large area. And large area integration, I mean that you can really, uh, you know, integrate all these things in an area of one by one meter or, or I don't know, half by half meter. This is really important. Because, you know, the whole microelectronic community goes down to dimensions and all these kind of things. But for many applications, so for example, for environmental intelligence or for robotics, you don't need to scale down everything or you don't need to, to, to have high performance electronics, but you have to distribute low performance electronics over space um, in flexible substrates or in stretchable substrates in order to conform in the body or in a building or in, in any kind of, of, of other, uh, I don't know, structure. And for these kind of things, organics, so to perform soft computation in, uh, let's say, um, unconventional environments, uh, organic electronics are really important. May I ask a question, please? Of course. Um, thank you very much for your talk, Doctor. That's fascinating. Um, one thing I was wondering, you were mentioning about like the soft materials. Um, 
that can work with the the, the AIs and things like that. Does that mean uh, that you can start to look at things like making <laughs> strange things like faces that the computer could like emulate as an expressions and things like that? Would that mean if it, if it could um, manipulate and pass through and communicate with the, or through the materials that it could actually interface with them to actually give things like that uh, and actually look at stuff like expressions and, and all, all of the non-verbal things. If I can, can, can you repeat it again, Jamie, because oh, I, I lost you a minute. Oh, I, I beg your pardon. Um, I'm saying the, the soft materials that you're saying yeah. that the electronics can, the AIs and things can work through. Does this mean that that's for uh, possible for things like faces, making like masks of human faces and the AI could begin to learn to smile and to frown for like non-verbal communications, that sort of thing? This can be, I mean, I, I never thought it, I mean, but there is a whole area, I mean, in, uh, you know, in organic materials, which are called, I don't know, artificial uh, noses. Um, because, I mean, there are, we call them artificial receptors in, in electronics, in, in organic electronics, but there is a whole, you know, library of materials that they have specific, let's say, interaction with biomolecules. And this is something that you cannot do with classic electronics because, you know, biology is closer to chemistry. So, for example, if you go to a chemist, you can, and I mean, a really good chemist, you can uh, more or less order a material that uh, will have a specific interaction with a specific ion or a specific neurotransmitter, or it can be selective to a specific ion and not the other ions. Uh, these are, and because, you know, soft matter and soft materials and polymers are closer to biology. Uh, so you can really start building, you know, at least in the future, smart systems that are, you know, selective to specific, you know, odors or, uh, I don't know, specific neurotransmitters uh, to have specific interactions with biomolecules in, uh, in a liquid phase or even in the gas phase, as you said. Uh, the possibilities are infinite with, with polymers and with organics because we are not limited uh, to a specific library of, of materials, uh, but the possibility of having materials with, with a wide range of, of, of properties is, is almost infinite. But on the other hand, you know, every time that uh, we as a community introduce a new material, uh, we have, of course, many problems, of course. Eh? Uh, so we have to, to, for example, study the stability of a new polymer. We have to integrate uh, the, the, this polymer or this material in, in a real microelectronic device. So it's not straightforward uh, whenever you, you add the material. But I guess, again, the freedom that you have to create, uh, you know, a material with a specific interaction with, with a biological carrier, it's, it's almost, we, we have infinite possibilities through That's synthesis. Fantastic. That's fascinating. Thank you. And one more thing. Um, what then, given that these uh, possibilities, I, I'm sorry, I, I can't really get my mind around the kind of <laughs> possibilities that are available with something like that. So can you tell me um, maybe like one or two really big, obvious things like you mentioned the environment or you mentioned me uh, medical. Is this the kind of thing that you could make like a model of a, a human body and put the the polymers and, and, and whatnot, the soft materials to emulate 
you know, like, like I don't know, blood flows or things like that, so that this thing could, say, emulate, um, you know, the, the body so that people can, like, observe it? Is that is that the kind of thing that could be done? Or uh, do you, any other, like... Well, I would say that... It... So simulating a, a, little, a really large-scale system, I think it's it's really a far-fetching, uh, you know, approach. And even even really established technologies have failed on that. I mean, even silicon technology. So at least in Europe, and I think also in the US, we had really huge, large-scale programs, uh, scientific programs of, of millions of euros. And they, basically, they failed to, to emulate in a large-scale uh, brain. Uh, but I think, I mean, there is a lot of space, I mean, in small-scale circuits anyway. So I, I don't believe that right now we have a technology to scale up in order to, to emulate, you know, large systems. But it's really important because we have many degrees of freedom to, to emulate biological functions in a really limited, a really small, uh, you know, amount of neurons, for example, or cells. And this is really important because this means that at the end you have a system a well-defined system that you can really study so really emulating you know large systems is it's really not possible yet with any kind of technology i would say like too many variables involved with that right yeah, but you're yes. saying if, that if you are talking about the yeah if we are talking yeah. about the whole organ no or for example in microfluidics i mean you have um, you know these organoids which you simulate the function of an organ but these are in small scale but <laughs> All these things right. are all these platforms are really important. Right, right. Yeah. That's fascinating. Okay, and and the, the neuron, the the, the neuron uh, simulation that it has, is that like just simulating, say, two or three neurons and simulating how they would interact, something like that. Uh, but at least what someone can do in 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 a really, uh, you know, cheap lab uh, in a way with with limited resources, at least you can do those things. But as I mentioned before. Organic electronics is, is a community which, in, in, in certain aspects, it's really mature. So in, in many of you, you have in, in your mobile phones, you have OLEDs, organic LEDs, light emitting diodes, which means that if there is an opportunity for commercialization, organic electronic, I mean, the, the, the technologies that, that uh, you know, the community has, um, the community, let's say, has the capabilities to upscale something in 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 a really environmental, uh, sorry, uh, industrial level. And then a, a successful example is, as I mentioned before, OLEDs, organic LEDs. Uh, so right now, what we do is is limited in in a few, let's say, elements. Uh, but of course, I mean, if there is a reason, of course, there are capabilities to to extrapolate this into a hundreds or thousands of of elements of devices. I mean, industry can do that, or industrial partners, let's say. Incredible, thank you very much. You're welcome. Hi, I had a question, um, just maybe a more basic one since I came into the room late, but would it be possible for um, for us to pin a reference from your work, Dr. Pascalis, because I just wanted to get more of um, a sense of the background of what you were talking about earlier? Or if you have a recommended review. Yeah, I mean we had a we had a recent review. So this, so this was, I mean, uh, this describes the whole area, let's say, of, of organic neuromorphic electronics in and mostly with with materials that are are more suitable for biological uh, applications. 
so it's a general review, but it's 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 a, a bit focused. So this was uh, a review paper in uh, Applied Physics Reviews uh, 2020. Applied Physics Reviews 2020. The first author is Haifeng Lin. Lin. Thank you. So this is something that I can really recommend to get an overview. Um, Eric, you're you're a little bit far away from the microphone. I think we can. I I cannot hear you. Maybe others can. Me too. You dropped. Um, he'll be back shortly. Oh, there you go. No, still still coming in low. So what I find interesting is that you kind of um, can replicate really well um, the synchron the synchronicity and oscillations of a network and um, that kind of the output um, reflects uh, kind of very relatively similar to what we see in actual brain um, stimulation and you also um, mentioned that you can basically reflect um, something like uh, neuroplasticity would you like to explain maybe that aspect a little bit more to the audience i think that's a very interesting one yeah of course Katarina. this is a really interesting question so because i didn't have time to to mention that so uh, the I mean, I, I, I described it a little bit, I mean, at the beginning, but it wasn't clear enough. So the advantage that those materials, uh, or these devices uh, have is that they operate in electrolytes. And when I mean operate in electrolytes, these, these can be solid electrolytes that you have in, in, in solid state batteries, for example, that you have in your mobile phones, you all have lithium batteries. More or less, we have devices that operate the community has devices that operate as, as those kind of batteries, solid state. But on the other hand, those, um, th those kind of technological devices, artificial devices, can also operate in liquid electrolytes, in salty electrolytes that we have in the brain also. And this is really important. I mean, if you want to, to, to emulate some high order phenomena that you find in the brain. So first, I mean, we introduced some of those things back in 2015, 16, I think, and the community was not really positive uh, about this, especially the community, you know, coming from traditional microelectronics, because basically what we were proposing is the operation of electronics in, in liquids. And this is really weird for, for people coming from traditional technologies. But here is what happens, I mean, if you, if you develop a technology which operates in liquids, in salty electrolytes, uh, basically. What basically you can do is that, uh, for instance, you have many devices which perform computation, and all these devices share a common or a global electrolyte, salty electrolyte, which means that whatever happens in the electrolyte, uh, can really uh, change the um, uh, the properties, the electrical or the electrochemical, I would say, properties of all these devices globally. Uh, if you, for example, if you increase or decrease um, the concentration of ions, 
you know, if you have a small deviation over um, a, a, a physiological range of, of ions, ionic species there of concentrations, then you really change the uh, the uh, let's say um, uh, the, the response of those devices. If you change a few degrees the, the temperature, or if you introduce uh, you know a small amounts of neurotransmitters there in the global medium, this is a global medium. This is the key. Then suddenly you change the, the the properties of all these devices. For you, for for many of you that you are you know biologists and neuroscientists, this means that we have a platform to emulate homeostasis, biological homeostasis. Uh, another important factor, for example, uh, when you have global electrolytes, is that the devices that we have that share a global electrolyte uh, communicate between each other through this global electrolyte. Which means that if you have, for instance, an electrochemical oscillation from somewhere from the electrolyte that that is applied, that is forced on the electrolyte, then suddenly all these devices can, uh, let's say, are connected, are functionally connected through this global oscillation, and then they can they, their uh, you know uh, their response can be synchronized. Uh, or we have, as, as we call it, phase locking between these global oscillations and, the, and it, what happens in, in a single device level. This is more or less what we have in LFPs, in local field potentials, in the brain, for example. Uh, so you have, so my point is that by having a global electrolyte, even an aqueous electrolyte, uh, that is shared to many of those devices that perform local computation, means that we have a medium, this electrolyte, that uh, serves as a connectivity medium or a homeostasis medium or, or a medium for synchronizing devices. And these are high order phenomena that you don't have, you cannot easily replicate them with other technologies. So they have to be sensitive, let's say, to ions, neurotransmitters, and all these kinds of things. And uh, the second part of your question, I, if, I, if I remember correctly, Katarina, was about plasticity. Uh, so imagine that more or less those devices are working as batteries in, in, in the simplest approach. So, for instance, we can uh, really put or inject ions, alkaline ions, uh, for example, potassium, sodium, uh, uh, chloride, uh, and other ions in the material. And then the, material, the, the electrical properties of the material change in an analog way which means that we have right now artificial synapses. So devices that they have these, they serve, they serve as, a, as, let's say, um, a building block for connecting neurons in an analog way. So we have this synaptic plasticity in those devices, but this synaptic plasticity, um, it's not an electrical synaptic plasticity, but depends on ions, neurotransmitters, and all this kind of thing, which means that we have devices that can really interact with what happens in biological substrates. Yeah, I think that is very a very important part of these devices. I don't think, I mean, we have, you know, neural networks that can through reinforcement learning, um, of kind of, but it's not a physical. It's so, you know, I, I I, we had the um, guest speaker Miguel Nicolilis and Ronald Sucurel here. I'm not sure if you yep. know. Yeah, 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 you know him. They always say, or they wrote a um, 
the book together, The Relativistic Brain, and basically one of the big problems is that you cannot, like in the current state of regular AI or um, neural networks, you don't have a physical change in the material um, that kind of reflects the memory uh, that is built. And I think that's a big difference of your devices and um, the current um, usually used um, devices, which could maybe just to have that physical difference. Um, do do you think that will make a big change in, in AI? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it will make a really big change in AI because, as I mentioned, I mean, AI now is based on, on devices which have electronic properties, only electronic properties. But as you all know, I mean, you have a whole diversity of signals and every carrier plays, uh, play, plays a specific role on signaling, which means that if, for example, in the future we build artificial network, I will not call them networks, but if, you, if we, let's say if we build physical networks that are sensitive to all these carriers of information, we might be able in the future to, to capture biological processes more precisely. This is a really important aspect, of course. And there are also many, many aspects. So, for example, we are, when we are talking about the technology, uh, right now the, the, the capabilities, for example, of, of uh, of traditional technologies in upscaling, uh, you know, to, to integrate uh, the number of devices or, uh, are, are enormous. So right now, silicon can really integrate, uh, or, you know, millions and billions of devices in, into a single substrate. The difficult thing is how you connect them. So you know better than me that, you know, we have a whole diversity of connecting topologies in, in biology. We have local topologies, global topologies, really regular topologies, three-dimensional connectivity. And uh, it's, it's really difficult to... So this is the limiting factor right now. It's really difficult to find a way, a technological way right now to emulate those, this connectivity. It's impossible to do it with technology. Um, another big uh, problem that we currently have in the field is just the scaling up of the computation, like of biological systems. We are way more efficient, you know, with a little bit of food, we do all this computation. Yeah. So will, will your devices also um, be uh, like uh, innovate that uh, efficiency uh, aspect? In principle, some of those devices, and this is the this is the race right now. I mean, in principle, one of those aspects, because right now, I mean, for the moment, I just described only, uh, you know, qualitative uh, uh, properties. Uh, but of course, we should have also metrics, real metrics for that. Uh, so, for instance, having devices that operate at the millivolt range, so one or two or three millivolts, which are close to what happens in biology is really important um, in, in terms of power consumption. Uh, so right now, for example, because all these devices are working liquids with ions that uh, the energy that you, you want to, you know, to transport some ions inside water is really low. Uh, 
the operation voltages basically or the differences that we need to, to apply in, in voltages are in, in this range, so 5, 10, 20 millivolts. And this is closer to what happens in biology, meaning that if we, in the future, we integrate many of those devices, this means that overall this, this circuit or this system will consume less energy and less power. And this is really important. As I mentioned at the beginning, 20 kilo, you know, 20 kilowatts and 20 watts is the difference, more or less, between, you know, a supercomputer and the brain. So the, the, the difference is enormous still. Well, I'm, I'm really enamored with your approach of using physical and chemical systems uh, in, in, to make uh, novel devices and computations. And I'm curious about the, um, you know, the paper that's pinned to the top of the room where you describe long-range interactions uh, between macromolecules uh, on the order of 100 nanometers or so. Um, I'd be interested to hear a, a little bit more about those systems because they, they uh, seem like an interesting avenue into uh, these, these novel devices. So Serena, the, the, to, to get it, in order to get it right, so the question is uh, to comment on uh, devices that so I didn't get the question. Well, so the there's a paper linked to the top of the room that describes um, your experimental results with uh, long distance electrodynamics uh, interactions with uh, macromolecules on the order of 100 nanometers or so. So this is I'm I'm not aware basically of this paper to be honest with you. But oh, is that not your work? <laughs> no, 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 because <laughs> not not yet at least. It was okay. the work from uh, the other person in the room before. That's what that was. Oh, that's what that is. yeah. That's, but it, it, that was it looks like cool. a nice, a, an interesting yeah. one. I will read it. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that, okay. was, that was from another doctor from uh, from before. Oh, which paper? Yeah, but yes. Do you remember when we were in that that other room a minute ago, Katerina? Oh, then but the doctor okay, from Florence. The, the electromagnetic stuff is still up there. It no. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I, yeah. <laughs> I got confused. I'm sorry. Uh, oh, my yeah, God. I thought, I'm really I thought you noticed that. But, I, thought you know, I, I was noticing. I was going, oh, like, okay. <laughs> I linked but it's an interesting one. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's our guest speaker uh, that is soon coming, Dr. Marco Patini. <laughs> I'm okay, so okay. sorry. I uh, wasn't okay, well, let, me, let me ask you. Let me ask a different Please. question. <laughs> so on the... Um, you described uh, artificial synapses as uh, you know responsive to different types of ions. Um, part of the efficiency of the synapse is there's uh, active removal of the neurotransmitters, um, you know, after the after signaling. I'm wondering if there's been uh, or or how how reversible that signal is. If there's an influx of ions into the material, is there? A corresponding system for active removal and restoration back to its its uh, unsignaled state. Uh, so, uh, in terms of of of, um, of ions, so devices that are responsive to ions is all these processes are really reversible. Uh, so really, the, uh, you know, chemistry now has all these tools to have artificial synapses, which are sensitive to a specific ion. Uh, we have a analog memory phenomena, meaning that we can really tune uh, the electrical properties of, of an artificial synapse in an analog way, like what happens in, in, in real biological synapses. And of course, this is reversible. Uh, 
So by applying, for example, the, the opposite potential, then you can really restore the, the initial state of, of the device. Uh, with chemistry, this is a little bit trickier. So, uh, for example, instead of ions, if you use neurotransmitters, for example, uh, you have to use other molecules which interact with the neurotransmitters in order to erase a memory, but you have to, to erase this memory chemically, not electrically. So not by applying a chemical, uh, I'm sorry, an electrical potential, but you have to introduce other elect uh, chemical species. So there are ways and there are many tricks, I mean, uh, with that. And basically, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning, the possibilities are infinite. With ions, the process is reversible. With, with uh, macromolecules and ionic molecules, uh, there are ways to do it. But not electrically, chemically, mostly. Uh, actually, there was a paper recently, and I've uh, pinned it over here to the side. So neurons or fickle electric fields are more reliable for information. It was a recent paper, uh, I've sent it in the back channel as well, that showed that uh, the fields on the surface uh, help to reinforce information coherence. So kind of like, a, uh, like an orchestra, you have the conductor playing um play like basically playing the orchestra and each musician can be interchanged so that's why for example uh, the hypothesis in the paper is that the that that's part of the reason why the brain is so robust in information processing because there is this uh, strange kind of coupling with the field and the uh electromechanical uh, uh functions of of the cells as well so uh Perhaps you're familiar with it, perhaps not, but um, I was curious what you thought of that. So this was, I mean, if I remember correctly, this was a paper in Brain or something like this. Eh? So it has a really, it had a really nice artwork, if I remember correctly, right? Um, please forgive me if I'm totally misunderstanding something, but um, if you can uh, use chemicals um, and electrolytes and things um, in this way, does that mean, you mentioned before, the slightest change in um, like voltage or something can actually have a different effect on the, like the, the technology, yeah, the, the calculations and stuff like that, Did you said that, yeah? Uh, more or less, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, does that mean then that if you had like a chem, essentially like a little chemical brain, does that allow for like much more robust sort of creative problem solving for something rather than a very very complex? You know, like we all know, obviously, the computer you have to have formulas and conditions and everything, whereas this could allow for a lot more. Like, uh, here's a problem here, and 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 it can actually solve it in a different way, or think, or process it in a different way each time you put the same problem in. Look, th th this is a really important uh, and interesting question, Jamie. So, and this goes back to 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 my biomimicry. So, when I say bi biomimicry, and I mean biomimicry in general. So. When you know the, the first airplane from Wright Brothers was introduced, so the, the, the main question was, do you really need, uh, you know, wings that flapping back and forth, I mean, to have an airplane? So the question that we always have, I mean, all these people, all these communities that they are working biomimicry is that up to which extent you have to, to emulate biology to, to be efficient. And of course, right now, the only answer that we have is that, of course, right now, it's what we have is not enough. 
at least. So your question is really nice and important. And I'm not sure if you really need, uh, you know, those aspects of, of biological aspects if you want to create an isolated system which performs computation just to, you know, to solve mathematics or, or whatever. Really hard, hardcore computation. But for instance, if you need a system which, you know, performs computation but close to biology, it means that you need those kind of freedoms, those degrees of freedom. So you have to... you. You have to be able to be sensitive and responsive to all these carriers of information. Uh, because in a way, it's like converting. So not I'm not talking about an analog to digital conversion, but you have, you know, all these kind of conversions between chemical signals, uh, ionic signals, or the opposite, or chemical to chemical, chemical to, to ionic, ionic to chemical. You have all this conversion locally there with the technology. Meaning, for example, to detect a disease, for example, or to detect a precursor of a disease, you have to develop technologies that are sensitive not only to electronics, to electrical signals. So I don't believe, you know, I mean, you, you know better than me, but I don't believe that the uh, the main expression of epilepsy is just high frequency oscillations. There are also other precursors there. This is just an example, I mean, eh? and and. This is an example to, 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 to show why we need, I mean, electronics that are able to handle all these signals bidirectionally. Yeah, I, I, I immediately see applications for immune systems and just tracking of that kind of information because uh, like uh, our team does, uh, 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 we've adapted a technology that allows non-invasive glucose monitoring and we've seen this kind of phase lock phenomena of the molecules and it suggests that you know you can map out basically a lot of immune activity and then get a profile of what's actually happening there and in a way that's a sort of computation uh, but in the sense that it's a computation that you can observe and you can say what the system is doing by its activity so it's a very fascinating thing if i may ask what kind of sensor technology uh, did you use to make these sorts of detections like our team uh, uses just a simple coupled split ring uh, resonator uh, type system. So uh, I, I'd be curious what kind of uh, hardware hardware you got. <laughs> no, no, it's not about. I mean, what we are doing. I mean, in 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 our lab is that uh, we develop new materials and devices for that. So we don't use commercial. Uh, uh, devices. So uh, what I can fairly say is that uh, we start from scratch to develop uh, uh, materials uh, that are sensitive to, to specific uh, uh, properties of biological uh, substrates. And then we, we really fabricate from scratch uh, capacitors, transistors, small-scale circuits, artificial neurons, artificial synapses uh, that do specific things. So I, I don't have a specific answer for that, but we start from zero to fabricate devices. So this is our, our our expertise, more or less, in my lab. Yeah, yeah, we're 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 more designing the the kind of circuit or the meta material just to get like a better increase in sensitivity. But we we don't actually go to the material science. So uh, could you uh, comment perhaps on the the material science? I apologize if it was already stated. So um, no, no, it, I didn't spend uh, a lot of time to be honest with you. That so. Uh, to put it in, 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 in a framework, basically, basically uh, we mostly use materials which are called 
organic mixed conductors, which this the, the main I mean they have a palette of properties, but the main properties of those uh, materials and these these materials of course are are a part of a, a device, but the core property of those materials is that they conduct not only electrons but also ions. Um, they can support the transport of uh, um, of molecular ions, of neurotransmitters uh, deep into their volume, and they have a, they can perform this translation or this transduction between an ionic signal and an electronic signal. A mixed conductor means that uh, I mean I don't want to go to, into the details in chemistry, but what happens is that whenever there are ions in this polymer. They, these ions can change the electronic conductivity of this polymer, which means that those uh, materials and devices, they perform an ion to electron converter and conversion pro process, which means that those devices, they are, let's say, a bridge between, you know, the ion, the, the analog ionic world that you have in biology and the electronics, which more or less they accept electrons. So they perform this kind of conversions and this conversion is local. So it happens in situ on, on a biological environment that, because of oh, okay. that seems because to be what's missing, uh, for example, with Neuralink, because they seem to have only captured one of the uh, one of the components. If I may uh, ask a further follow up question, what is the, I guess, industrial um, potential here? Because for us, it's all about keeping it very, very cheap. Uh, it, it, and perhaps this is not appropriate to ask. So please feel free to dismiss the question. Um, uh, but what is the cost of manufacturing these kinds of uh, platforms right now? I, I'm not sure, to be honest with you, that I'm not able to to comment on that. So it it really depends on 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 the process that you have on labs. So it, so for us, because cost is not really critical, and, and precision is really critical, we we tend to use really precise let's say, processes to have devices which are, you know, 100% reproducible. So for us, because we are a lab, I mean, uh, we, cost for us doesn't really matter. Uh, but when there is an idea, an idea and we have to translate this idea in an industrial level, then we go into these kind of discussions. And then there are possibilities to decrease the cost. So for instance, as I, I briefly mentioned, I mean, at the beginning, all these Organic electronics, the nice with organic electronics is that they are, uh, uh, they can be really implemented with uh, additive manufacturing methods, as we call them. So you can really print them with uh, 3D printing, inject printing uh, in large scales with uh, something that is called uh, screen printing. So these are massive techniques. And basically, the only thing that you need is a nozzle to, you know, to, to just print on, on, on a flexible substrate. And these techniques, I mean, because this this is a parallel and massive technique. In principle, it's 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 much easier and uh, you know much much less expensive than what we we do in our lab. So the short uh, you know answer is that in our lab we choose because there are many reasons to use expensive techniques. But in principle, all this can be translated to to you know to a massive and uh, you know really cheap techniques. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of, uh, uh, I guess, the, yeah. the, the path that we had was the prototype was a few thousand dollars and now it's tens yeah, of dollars because yeah. we were able to piggyback yeah. off of yeah, the yeah. silicon industry and other yeah. t technologies that exist out there. So it was yeah. quite interesting uh, being able to do that. Do you see that as a possibility or? 
Yeah, yeah, up to an extent. Yeah. So the uh, if I may comment, I mean, on the previous, uh, you know, uh, discussion uh, part, uh, the, the the limiting factor, which is not necessarily, you know, negative in in many cases, that. Uh, the cost in many cases is when you develop new materials. Uh, so to, to find ways to synthesize new polymers and new materials can be really costly. And to find ways, you know, to upscale, you know, you can synthesize a really nice material and polymer that has incredible, uh, you know, properties. And you might have only a few grams, of a few milligrams. And then there is a whole story of how you upscale those kind of things, you know, to create kilograms of 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 this uh, of these polymers. And I think the the cost is there. So the cost is is mostly, you know, on the side of chemistry, to be honest with you, because all the other processes are more or less established. Yeah, so yeah. Micro, microfabrication processes are established. I mean, it's not a problem. So how you develop materials that are in 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 in, uh, in let's say less expensive side is is, is and was your search cr criteria or your search process for these materials was it computational or analytical uh, depends on what you want to do basically so what we do as a methodology mostly is that this is by rule i mean in in the lab i mean because it's most the fastest and the most efficient ways that many of those materials are commercially available, to be honest with you. So when we start a study, we tend to prefer commercially available materials in order to extract our, our initial conclusions. And then after that, once we have the, the conclusions, then we start, you know, talking with chemists uh, to have a, you know, a specific function. Uh, then on this discussion, some, you know, theoreticians might be involved, as you said, which perform computation. This can be with AI to, you know, to explore really uh, the, the infinite space that we have in properties, or it can really be simulations, or, you know, by with uh, first order, uh, first principle simulations, I mean, to, to just uh, see what kind of properties we need. And then they synthesize new materials. But the path is, uh, it's almost always from commercial materials to more specific and, you know, tailor-made materials. This yeah. is the way we do it usually. Yeah, because uh, uh, like our team, for example, uh, was able to do some analytical work up to a point, And then the explosion of complexity forced us to then embrace some of these computational methods just because of the size of the... Yeah of the space yeah, yeah. so i was just curious like what your methodology was because i i started off my academic career being in in more of an analytical uh kind of scientist and then now i'm kind of seeing myself uh doing more and more uh computational things there's still that human intuition element guiding uh the the vision but yeah, but the really interesting results are, are uh, computational, it seems, more and more. Although there was a recent speaker here, I, I forget the speaker's uh, name, but they had an amazing result, just purely analytical with chemistry, which just blew my mind because I don't hear that often nowadays. So that, mm -hmm. that's, that, that's why I asked the question. Thank you. Thank Dr. McKenzie. Yep. Was it the talk on Wednesday? Eric, Dr. Lewis McKenzie. It, it was, um, I believe it was the uh, f female scientist. I, I, I hate to say it 
even that way, but uh, she spoke uh, with, with a German accent, maybe, um, or, or some sort of accent. And uh, she talked about uh, uh, the the idea of choosing a molecule through first principles and then going on from there. So, yeah, I, it was, uh, it was um, actually also Greek. Uh, it's about the pathogens, the re microbe uh, resistant. Yeah. Um, the antibiotic resistance. She had a novel breakthrough that was yeah, uh, to breaking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, I was also and, curious, um, about the, um, if you've looked at ways in terms of, you know, isolating and compartmentalizing some of these systems, so whether they have ion-selective membranes or uh, combined fields and hybrid approaches, um, whether, they're, whether you can um, or have looked at constructing arrays of them, so the particular history of the, of the ionic composition or in, in the fields of any particular cell, um, not biological, but just as a region of space that's somewhat insulated, can carry that history as a part of the computation. Is that making sense? I mean, in terms of arrays of these that can hold states and his in time history. Oh, that that's an interesting. I'm also curious about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in I mean, so let me put it this way. So, if you want, if so, the community ten years ago or even even earlier. So the main the main task of the community was to build devices and circuits for logic applications. Logic applications means more or less classic electronics, as you know them. And the critical part of classic electronics is that they have to be stable over time. So if uh, a, a circuit operates in the same way, in, in a way today, it has to operate in this exactly the same way some months after that. Uh, but what you say is exactly what happens in biology. So if we flip a little bit, I mean, the, the properties that some materials of those have, which are not for sure are not good for, for logic uh, circuits, is that they have this ability to integrate over time, for example, uh, ionic signals. So they change. So what they called, I mean, in the community, they called that, uh, you know, um, a shift in, in or a drift, I mean, in the, in the behavior of the device. But actually, this drift is really predictable. And uh, by taking advantage of those kind of drifts or the integration of ionic signals over time, then you have, you know, devices which evolve over time. In, well, in the, in the sense that this is, it, it's a kind of analog computing in the sense that, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, it would be a primary feature of the device, yeah. you know, that you're designing. And, and, and it seems and certainly with additive manufacturing and, and other types of technologies, you could fabric, fabricate larger arrays of, of these things that um, could, you know, have have analogy to hidden layers or, or this kind of thing, but would be, you know, physical and in real time responsive. And you could couple in, you know, light information, ionic information, field information, um, but, but it would be in essence an analog co computational device. I, I have sort of a different question about whether um, these systems that you've built can be used to model um, specific diseases, especially like ion channel diseases, as you were talking about. Um, I think some of the um, uh, some of the composition of these materials that you could probably model um, ion channel disorders that lead to things like epilepsy or 
migraine or ataxia and then um, see how those play out in your models and then maybe even test possible drugs or um, interventions to affect the progression of the disease through this. Are, is there work in that area being done? Is that like um, the organic little circuits? Sorry, just to clarify, is that like, you know, where they say, oh, this is like an organ, this is like a lung, and you can see those kind of, yeah. is that what you mean, Dr. Olu? Yeah, so the idea is that once you've built this system that's a model of some specific ion channel-based disease, then you can test different compounds to see if it then um, affects the progression of the disease or modifies the progression of the disease. In a, in a really well-controllable environment. This is absolutely correct. So, for instance, what we were... So the community uses this term, uh, the, you know, uh, neural accelerator in, in classic, you know, artificial neural networks. But if we extend this, this term, uh, for sure we can have in the future disease accelerators, for example, with have, by having these circuits. So you're absolutely correct, yeah. And I, for me, it's a really fascinating uh, field of research. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big problem, at least uh, for the models that I've worked with, the leaky integrated firing models, they kind of always seem to be missing some sort of channel of communication. I remember one of the first conversations I had with Katerina was where is the information stored that we're thinking about in the brain because okay there's the synapses but that doesn't seem to be adequate and then there's all these layers of complexity and at every scale there is some sort of memory-like function and this process seems to integrate into a a common you know oh here's my thought and not not to speculate too much but uh, can, can you perhaps you've thought of this but the idea of the nature of qualia the, the nature of the experience, do you think this would uh, help uh, uh, us understand that a little bit more? Or do you see the, I, I think, I think the, the question perhaps is clear, even though uh, perhaps not. For me, the question, I mean, the question remains a question, but it's a really fascinating question. I mean, I don't know if all these things, you know, come up by, by small, uh, you know, systems and uh, by compartization of a system, or you really need large-scale systems, but for me, it's a really fascinating uh, aspect. Okay, like, yeah. I, cannot, I cannot answer on this that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just curious because it seems that we're slowly building up more and more of the channels that represent the encoded information, and then being able to decode it, uh, we, we get that much closer to the subjective quality of experience of, of conscious thought or, or that sort of thing. Another question. So this is incredibly um, involved, but where do you personally want, what, hope to see this research going or where you'd like to uh, you know, channel your efforts into it? Do you have a, in your head a, a kind of roadmap where you're thinking, I think it would be best applicated here, or I'm curious if this could be done or anything like that? Do you have a a specific direction you'd like to go to with the research? If if there was industrial people listening, they're like, hey, what, what do we, what should we do? I mean, there are always ways to, you know, to answer to these questions, but I prefer to, for the moment, I mean, I prefer to keep those in, in a basic research level, uh, let's say. So, for instance, this, the short-term roadmap would be to have, you know, small-scale devices and circuits uh, that would be able to efficiently interact with with biological substrates 
And then I believe that if we have metrics which are competitive or quite different uh, than what we have commercially available right now, I believe that there, there will be a way for, you know, extrapolating those things. So for me, it's really important to, you know, to build a solid background of these kinds of things right now. And this is the scope of at least uh, in, at the institute that I'm working. So they perform by basic research, the Max Planck Society. So I think it's it's really important, I mean, to build a solid foundation on these kinds of things right now. And applications will come, I'm sure about this. Okay, maybe the question, if it was rephrased, where would you see this work potentially being in seven? No, five- no, no, actually, that was my question, because I was asking where did he, like himself, like, and, and you answered me, doctor, by saying you believe that the, the, the topic does, just needs the thorough research that it deserves, yes? Yeah. And that's what you're looking at at the moment, just to thoroughly understand it better and yeah so yeah. to debate let, let's say i mean if you want to put it in a in a short phrase or in a couple of uh, you know sentences is to to develop a low power uh, electronics organic electronics which have enhanced abilities to communicate with uh, you know biological substrates and then in this way we will have a uh, platforms in order to to have bidirectional Communication with biology. Fascinating. Thank you very much. It's amazing. Uh, I wonder if, uh, of course, this would probably interest uh, the folks over at Neuralink because that's immediately what I think of. But perhaps that's uh, incorrect, but very exciting. Thank you. Yeah, I wanted to check in with you. about your time availability if you um still have a few minutes or because we've been going for an hour and 20 minutes and i apologize again about no no worries no worries I, I mean it's my pleasure it's my pleasure <laughs> <laughs> yeah i apologize again for posting the wrong paper it was somehow must have been in my copy paste no worries thanks bill gates i'm correct me guys but the paper was nice yeah, he will be coming. Uh, I can I can check um, Dr. Uh, Marco Petini from Italy. He will be um, he will be coming um, later this month. So um, yeah, so everyone, um, please follow the Science Society. How you do that is on the top where it's written science society there's this little greenhouse if you click on it you will see uh the dates like the rooms that we will have and um some short information you can join the club and then if you click on this uh, little bell it will give you note if you want to uh, be reminded about some uh, room that we will have uh, you will be reminded if you click on the little bell and um, yeah, so um, I think we have one more person who came up last yeah. minute, you know, the the, the, the red eye, so to speak, Andrew Cotafen, uh, a friend of mine. So if, I, I hope the, the question is uh, amazing as your questions are always interesting, Andrew. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to ask Dr. Pascalis a question. Um, Kalispera, Dr. Pascalis. <laughs> I do, speak, <laughs> I do not speak Greek, but I just thought you'll feel homely with a good evening uh, greeting in Greek. Um, 
Uh, I'm wondering, uh, I feel so bad for missing the conversation, but thankfully the replays are on, so I'll definitely have a listen and read the paper as well. Um, uh, I'm wondering if you can speak a bit on Brian Johnson's uh, project named Kernel, Kernel spelled with a K. It's a non-invasive um, brain-computer interface. Um, it's mm, It basically kind of predicts um, let's say brain waves trying to differentiate between what could be circumstantial or what is actually neurochemical. So, for example, um, practical utilities could be, let's say, in the ER, in the accident and emergency, where someone presents, um, shows up with, uh, let's say, acute symptoms of depression or even suicidal thoughts. And then it could be differentiated whether or not it is uh, the neurochemistry at fault or just something circumstantial in terms of the mind? No, I'm not, I'm not so, so this is a really nice comment. I mean, so I'm not really aware, deeply aware, I mean, of, of this research, but I think it's, you know, it's really important to have uh, uh, these technologies, optical technologies for these kind of things. You know, the, uh, there are obvious advantages of, of, of having a, a communication an optical communication with the brain. Uh, to be honest with you, I mean, and to to really comment on that really deeply, I don't. I mean, I I have to study more on that. Uh, I but can try and send you some. Um, yeah, I can try yeah. and send you some. Yeah, yeah. What to Katerina and Katerina will get in touch with. Yeah. yeah, and and if I may, just uh, uh, if there are students listening in the audience, and this is kind of an important thing for academia, as we have these. Uh, generations of students, if there were students listening at the undergrad level or the graduate level, uh, what would you recommend as a place where they could get started on this work? Uh, obviously going to your, uh, uh, to your page, but if there's any specific resources or anything like that that you would recommend or a talk, uh, I, I think uh, folks would really appreciate that. So what I can do is I, I can post a, a few a few review papers, but they, I think the, the the best way is to start with with a few review papers which summarize uh, more or less the state of the art, the the advancements and the key properties of those kind of uh, of materials. And as uh, you know, a general advice would be that someone who wants to be successful uh, on that has to be on the interface. You know, between electronics and biology has to be super, uh, you know, interested in, in what happens in biology. Although if, even me, I mean, I don't have a background in biology and neuroscience, but it's it's really important you to, to live on this interface uh, for me. But I can share if you want a, a few review papers uh, that, and perspective. Uh, yes, papers. yes. We also have a few, a few interesting perspectives. On that. Uh, Dr. Pascalis, sure. I have another quick follow-up question. Uh, this is a bit more entertaining for everyone, yeah, and yeah. including yourself. Um, yeah. Are you connected with your, uh, let's say, fellow countryman, Manolis Kelis? Mano Manolis who? Manolis Kelis. I, I don't know him. MIT Manolis. researcher, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. No, I, I, I don't know him personally, yeah. I hope no. somehow you get connected with him. Yeah, I um, I'll try to send you. Yeah, some. the the two of them should definitely connect. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good to know that. Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll back hey, channel the name. I, maybe we can. I can try to invite him and then I'll let you know. Maybe we can do that. Andrew, yeah. if you send me a link. Yeah, that would be great. I'll do that. 
that's actually the plan for uh the next round maybe later this year i was we were planning on because we had some some guest speakers that have like overlap of interest and uh sometimes know each other sometimes don't but uh it's interesting so we were planning on doing rooms like this in the future where we have maybe uh more kind of a panel discussing a topic um, I think that would be interesting for everyone, or where maybe, yeah, maybe that could be incredibly interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, this I is... sent you both the link to Manolis Kelly's Wikipedia, uh, Katarina. And yeah, he also did a feature on Lex Friedman. So if uh, if you're uh, curious about doing that, I'm sure the cool kids uh, hanging out with the cool kids will get you on uh, Lex Friedman. So I think reaching out to the public and doing public outreach with even like super cutting edge theoretical science, I think is really useful. I recall going to a talk in high school in uh, grade, uh, grade 12, uh, I drove almost two hours to go see Edward Witten. And it made such an impression that I studied very, very hard for a very long time. <laughs> so I think it's always exciting um to, to do that sort of thing but uh, thank you very much for joining us today um i think clubhouse is a wonderful place to meet all these like-minded people and katarina the founder of the club is doing such a great job i don't know when you sleep katarina so uh you'll have to tell us the secret in another life or something well this night i really didn't i, I don't know until when did the room yesterday go dennis i think i fell asleep at like 1 30 a.m I'm not sure. Trying like four in the morning, your time. <laughs> no, it's fine. I just fell asleep at some point, and yeah. then I'm still. I'm. I'm also sick on top, so I really. I'm not very good today. I really apologize. So, Doctor uh, Pascalis, for people that joined the room like myself a bit more late, maybe if if with Katarina's permission, if uh, we are heading towards the end of the room, maybe a retrospect of what has been discussed, a bit of a boiling down. The boiling down of my research, you mean, eh? <laughs> Original. Yeah. So yeah there's, still, there's still years into into seconds. Please go yeah, for the it. Yeah, the pause is uh, reset the room. That's what people yeah. say. The one minute. So, so, so the first the 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 first conclusion of the discussion before seven p.m. my time. I mean, was that you don't drink uzo, you don't drink something with anise. And, so this was the first conclusion, if you remember. <laughs> so this was the first one. <laughs> and just to let people know, I uh, tweeted out to uh, Manolis Kellis on Twitter. I had the good fortune thank you. Thank you. to follow him, and he followed me back because of some some, some interesting thing that I wanted to talk to him about. Uh, he's a very yeah. wonderful speaker, uh, very soft-spoken, speaks like a Jedi. And one of my favorite stories that he told was when he, uh, I think his child's bicycle was stolen and the child was very upset. And he said, look, we're lucky enough to be so to be well off enough that we could afford to have a bicycle stolen. But those who stole the bicycle, imagine how their life is it must be that much more difficult and it created this level of compassion and i've used that line myself when people have had their items stolen and it creates a certain level of comfort and compassion so not only is he a wonderful scientist as yourself but the level of compassion that uh, that uh, i think is yeah. some scientists demonstrate is is a good thing for society especially oh, nowadays yeah. when everything seems very chaotic 
That, that's Thank a really good share, Ayo. Also, um, that's a very fortunate glitch in the matrix that uh, you guys follow each other, yourself and Maloney Skillis. Also, a quick uh, share. Um, I also had my bike stolen when I was uh, a young boy, and I never understood until I grew up later. My mom said they needed it more. <laughs> I just couldn't comprehend that at the time. I was just going to say thank you, Dennis. That means I won't feel bad when I steal your bike. Uh, uh. <laughs> oh, and I'm so happy. I just got a delivery of a bunch of electronic components. So today I'll be doing some lab work here, putting soldering things together and doing some stuff. So yay for science. Okay, so um, yeah, thank you so much everyone for coming and especially to Pascalis. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. Such thank a great you very much, Doctor. For me as well. Thank you very much. Really, I mean it. Yeah, thank you. And um, okay. hope to connect again in the future. Yeah, come back anytime. Uh, we'll have we have a lot of rooms that are maybe too late for you because it's nine p.m. EST, but we have. Um, in between rooms uh, from European speakers. So on Monday at 9 p.m. we have Dr. Salamat. He's an exogeologist. So he is a geologist that uh, looks at how things could be in other planets. And he'd, um, he found a new form of ice with different pressure and temperature playing around uh, that, that could be um, existing in this way in other in other planets in the universe and he will talk also about other uh, metals and so on that they are working on simulating how they and then they do the lab experiment hopefully and, it's not ice nine right so that mythical uh, i don't know you can ask him on monday he mentioned metallic hydrogen which i was yeah like, that's really cool. yeah it will be a really cool presentation then Dr. Lenzo presenting uh, Human Evolutionary Distinctiveness, his, his latest uh, publication. Then we have Dr. Liang um, talking about how to uh, how he created carbon negative production of acetone and isopropanol, which is kind of more climate related room. And um, Dr. Morin will talk about ADHD and elevated levels of hoarding in ADHD and that work. And then we'll have Dr. Emre coming to talk about this really cool new um, research about the nasal spray that stops memory decay and Alzheimer's. I'm very excited about that on Friday. And then on Saturday at the same time, we started today at 1 p.m. EST, we'll have the, the um, Dr. Marco Pettini. Uh, we talk about the paper that was posted by mistake, by my mistake. <laughs> about long distance electrodynamic intermolecular forces. So uh, he's a really nice person and a really wonderful scientist. So I'm also really excited to have him. And yeah, thank you so much again. This was a wonderful room, Pascalis. I uh, really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, thank you folks. Have a nice rest of the day. Thanks, you too. Have a great evening. Bye, everyone. Much respect, everyone. Bye, oh yeah, and tomorrow we have the weekly recap at this time at 1 p.m. EST. So if you missed rooms throughout the week, we'll give like a short summary version, like in one hour room where we just summarize 
what we heard and uh, give people another opportunity to like listen in and ask a few questions. So if you missed rooms or didn't get to ask a question, if we can answer them, we'll be happy to do that. So, okay, bye. <laughs> now, bye. three, bye. one, bye. two, one.